Hey everybody, I'm Ashton Demery. And I'm Nicole Demery. And welcome back to our Atheist Bible Study, where I have been chasing the Bible with reverse harem novels. <laughs> and <laughs> I think I'm just making things infinitely more complicated for whatever future therapy I end up going to. <laughs> I mean, it probably depends on what order you do it in. Maybe it's like a beer before liquor kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, what I'm rewarding myself for reading the Bible uh-huh. with these books. But I think it's giving, like, a weird positive association, you know, with reading, you know, like Pavlov's dog, yeah, kind of. I, okay, I, I hear you. Maybe so yeah, maybe you're going to be erotically associating the Bible now. Yeah, it just feels like I'm adding, like, too many layers to the... Probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, today we are doing our last segment of Deuteronomy. It should be a little bit shorter because uh, th- there's there's not as much here in this third segment. But uh, as we discussed before, right, this is coming off of the main Deuteronomic law code uh, and includes some more. It's sort of an outro to that law code and includes a lot of redaction that comes from the future perspective of the post-exilic Deuteronomist. Yeah. So we open with. The inscribed stones and altar on Mount Ebal. And this is just them discussing how when they cross the Jordan, that's put at these stones um, that have the laws on them, which I'm assuming the laws that they're talking about are the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And this, remember, this whole section, I mean, this whole book really is a retelling of all this stuff. So it's different here before when they, they make the second tablets and apparently God creates them. And then now we've already they already retold us creating the second tablets, but now he wants the Israelites to again create tablets mm-hmm. and then cover them in plaster this time, which is kind of new. Yeah. Then we have the twelve curses. So he he tells them to like split the tribes up on these different mountains for a blessing and for a cursing. And then he goes through and says, "Curse be anyone." who uh, makes an idol, dishonors father and mother, moves a neighbor's boundary mark, misleads a blind person, deprives an alien orphan or widow of justice, lies with a father's wife, lies with an animal, lies with your sister, lies with your mother-in-law, strikes down a neighbor in secret, takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, or who doesn't uphold the law. It's like a general ending there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the curses here is, is really, it feels like another, it, it's just another reminder and reinforcement of the commandments, it seems yeah. like. Um, we, we see that kind of a lot. But what I found really interesting here is that opening where it talks about splitting up the Israelite tribes among the mountains. Mm-hmm. And I did some research on this, and it seems that there's no scholarly consensus on what exactly is going on here and why. They're talking about this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like they really come full circle on it because they they separate them and then they just give a bunch of general curses. Yeah, and don't seem to describe the way that they're blessing one and cursing the other. They just say that they're assembling them and then move on. So my overall theory here is basically that this is just another example of the southern tribes' polemic against the northern tribes. Okay, remember the the Deuteronomist sees the northern tribe in failing in following the law code Mm -hmm. and that's the reason that it falls first and then eventually all of uh judah falls as well Mm -hmm. so things here that reinforce that i think 
are these two mountains are both in the northern kingdom of Israel, but Jerusalem is south of Mount Ibal. Okay. So they're putting the several tribes in the northern mountain to be cursed and then several tribes on the southern mountain to be blessed. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm going to I'll fast forward a little bit to 1 Kings. That's where you get the description of of what the northern tribes and southern tribes are because that's where it describes the splitting of Israel. Mm-hmm. So there are more or less 10 tribes that end up becoming the northern tribes and it only says one tribe becomes the the southern which is Judah. Okay. Um the way these tribes are parsed out is always a little bit weird because there's 12 tribes but really there's 13 if you remember that Joseph's sons get they both get elevated to tribes. You have the half-tribe of Manasseh and then Ephraim. Okay. So it's a little bit unclear exactly what tribes they're talking about. However, if you do look at the tribes that end up on Mount Ibal, every single one of them is certainly a northern tribe. Right? Okay. They're all in that 10 tribes that are considered to be northern tribes. And on the southern mountain, Jerusalem, you have Judah and Benjamin, which are... Judah is definitely southern for the the kingdom of Judah. And then Benjamin is often considered to have joined the kingdom of Judah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that really reinforces that idea that this is sort of a polemic against the northern tribes. I think there could be some lost context here. Yeah. I think that there are probably more ways that these tribes could have been parsed out. I don't think it was as clean as what First Kings describes. I think that's a simplification and there was probably more nuance in how these tribes split. And Deuteronomy is preserving a different history of how the tribes were separated. But again, there's not enough real uh, information here to fully understand what they're trying to say. Yeah. So he splits them up. He says he's going to curse one, bless the other. But like Ashton said, instead, they just end up kind of going through these general curses that sound very similar to the Ten Commandments. And then they have blessings for obedience. So this is supposed to be the blessing. But again, it reads more just like a general blessing. And it's, you know, the same shit we've been hearing, which is if you follow all of God's commandments and you're going to be blessed in every single way imaginable in the city, in the fields, health, wealth, all that stuff. And then it kind of doubles back again to curses. So there's all these things for if you obey God and then it goes into this idea where if you disobey God, then all of these bad things will happen. And it's a much, much longer list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they start with the same things. They basically negate all the blessings. Yeah. And then they just keep running. Yeah. And <laughs> so I didn't write down everything, but a few of the ones that stood out to me was, um, it says, if you, you shall be engaged to a woman, but she will sleep with another man and uh, women will start to eat their children because they will like have nothing else to eat. Those are some more of the extreme <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> curses that I noted. Yeah, I counted the lines. There are exactly 14 lines of blessings, mm-hmm. and there are 54 lines <laughs> of curses. Yeah, sounds about right. Oh, another one that I wrote down was, you will try to become slaves to Egypt again, but they won't even buy you. Like, they're not even going to want you. <laughs> like, you're not even good enough to be somebody's slave. Yeah, <laughs> it won't take you back. <laughs> yeah, I think this is an interesting aspect of religion, is that, Fear does seem to be a really powerful motivator, and mm-hmm. it, it's kind of universal to, especially with with monotheistic religions, is fear as a as a motivator to follow the rules and to, to stay in it. Yeah, and it seems to be stronger than the blessings or the uh, the opportunities that religions 
mm-hmm. uh, supposedly offers. Right. And I don't know if you experienced it as much as a child, but I know with I, my grandma, she talks a lot about that's it's what she was she grew up in, in in Pentecostal churches. Yeah. And it's what she likes. It's what she seeks out in a sermon. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, whenever anybody tries to leave, I feel like it's the message is not like, why would you want to leave such a loving community? It's like, you're going to go to hell. (laughs) Why would you do that? Now you're going to eternal damnation. Aren't you scared? Like, and that is, I mean, for us, we talked a little bit about it in our, in our Welcome to our Atheist Bible Study episode about how, like, that was kind of the first thought that we had. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, as far as, like, I, I think some, like, branches play into it a lot more, but all of them c- have that element to it, just because, yeah. like, it's, you know, from the Bible, like, in the text, there's more descriptions of hell than there is of heaven, there's more, there's way more fe- fear-mongering yeah. in there than there is descriptions of, like, God's love and stuff, so even if, like, a church tries not to, like, push that more, they can't help it, because there's just more of that in it's the Bible. There. yeah. yeah. And I also think that as I've, I'd really like to find some, some data and see if there is any relationship between the use of like the fire and brimstone and Mm -hmm. hell and what effect that has on the growth of a church and the extent to which people stay in it. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that especially in recent years, when I look at like mega churches and when I look at churches and, and church leaders that have public attention and that have followings outside of just their local area, mm-hmm. that is what, what they generally preach. Yeah. And like if you look at like Kenneth Copeland's and like televangelists out there, they do a lot of that. And it seems to engage people in a way that just talking about Jesus can't really do. Mm-hmm. So then we have the covenant renewed in Moab. So Moses is like, retelling the story of how they were brought out of the desert and God was the one who was guiding them through all that. And then I have a quote that says, he says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And so like basically telling them that like, none of you understand what God's will is. Like you're all just kind of following along, but none of you have like the capacity because God has not given it to you to understand him Mm -hmm. to his fullest extent. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you should do that, bro. <laughs> yeah. like, he keeps calling them fools and stuff like that. And it's I like, know. well, maybe you should make them not fools. Right. <laughs> maybe you should open up their minds to whatever this, you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe glorious they'd be plan more is. Obedient. And then he like sets up a little witch hunt within his own community and says, like, even now there are people among you who are turning away from God. And then he goes into this whole thing about how like even more more people are going to turn away from God later. And if you if you let your neighbor do this, then God will turn against all of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is another effective tool, I think. Uh, it's kind of like older leadership styles, like what you might see in like the military in the past. Mm-hmm. would be things like where you punish everybody over like what if you do in order to like kind of turn them against each other and get more obedience and that that to me is kind of what this is it's like if they believe that there is kind of like the devil among them and it's gonna you know corrupt them all Mm -hmm. well you end up in this sort of arms race of who's the most devout yeah and it's very effective at keeping people engaged and following the rules of what you're doing yeah also did you read the line where it says you have not drunken wine or strong drink yeah so the entire time in the desert according to this they have not drank 
wine or strong drink. Yeah, well, this is something that we've, like, been talking about, how there's, like, no consistency on what these people are eating. Like, if they're only <laughs> eating manna or if that's stopped after the first 40 years and then right. the last 40 years they got to eat, you know, part of the sacrifices and stuff. Yeah, well, it, if you look back throughout all of the stuff we've been reading, yeah, uh, they do talk about abstaining from wine and strong drink in particular scenarios, mm-hmm. like, you're going into the tent of meeting if you're like a priest and you're about to, to do something yeah. in the tent of meeting, you can't drink wine or strong drink. And they killed two sons of Aaron mm-hmm. for doing that, apparently. And then also there's like the Nazarites who aren't allowed to do it. But everything about that implies that everybody else has been and is allowed to do it. And if you go even back to Deuteronomy 14, mm-hmm. so in the same book, it says you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep or wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice (laughs) you and your household. Yeah. It's telling them that they are allowed to eat strong drink as a, in in fact, saying that they should do it as part of their religious ceremonies. Yeah. So then we have God's fidelity assured. So after he's told them all that they're all going to turn against God, there's this portion talking about how, well, when you turn back to God, then he's going to give everything back. I feel like they've said this kind of before, but usually it's like, well, after like 10 generations of punishment, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) This whole next section is just flip flopping back and forth between like, Mm -hmm. all of you are going to turn away from God, but when you turn, and so he's going to turn away from you. And then when you turn back, then God will come back and all this (laughs) stuff. So I also, I, I misspoke. I believe the last episode that we had mm-hmm. and I said that circumcision is not mentioned at all in Deuteronomy. Yeah. And there is one exception to that here. Circumcision of the heart. Correct. Yeah. So they, they use the word circumcision. However, they are not commanding Israelites to circumcise themselves in the way that the priestly text does. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's, there's no expression of like punishment for people who don't circumcise themselves or saying, Hey, you have to circumcise yourself in the priestly text is pretty consistent about that yeah since you brought it up what does that mean to you when you hear circumcision of the heart so the idea of circumcision in the israelite culture especially after the the priestly text came Uh about is very much about like purity and stuff like that so to circumcise your heart i think means to purify your heart okay in the way that circumcising yourself self is supposed to be like an expression of purity so foreskin is like a metaphor for like sin. I think for so. Like I think that's pleasures. Not incorrect. Okay. Yeah, I just thought that was a weird thing to say. Circumcision of the heart. I think we've actually heard that line before in Exodus, maybe. Mm. Okay. So go back to what we were talking about. So after God's fidelity is assured, then there's this exhortation to choose life. So again, we go back to fear mongering. And then it ends with like, you know, you must obey in order to choose life. Yeah. And it's like, dude, it's really easy. <laughs> yeah. You have to do, follow every little thing that I say. <laughs> okay. And then we are getting this transition period from Moses to Joshua. So Joshua becomes Moses, Moses's successor. So Moses is uh, getting up there in age. He's 120 years old. And he... Uh, is not allowed to cross the Jordan to go into the Holy Land. So the I guess currently they're all just kind of like idling outside of it right now because mm-hmm. none of them are allowed to go in. So, yeah, so he's going to turn things over to Joshua so they can finally enter into the land. Yeah. 
Okay, then it says the law to be read every seventh year. So basically they need to read out the laws that God has made for them every seven years. Everybody is, you know, clear on what those are. Yeah. I, I guess this maybe would come in like when during like the Sabbath or not the like the sabbatical year type ceremonies. Mm-hmm. And then we go back to talking about Moses turning things over to Josh to Joshua. So God calls Moses and Joshua together in his cloud form and he tells Moses that he's going to die soon and that once he does die the people are going to start to follow other gods and then he says you know God will hide from the people when this happens and he's going to allow terrible things to happen to them and they're going to look around and they're going to realize that these terrible things are happening to them because you know God is not there and then God will continue to hide himself from them And so he wants Moses and Joshua to teach the people a song so that when these terrible things start to happen to them, he can say, I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he can like rub it in their face (laughs) that we knew all along you were going to. Yeah. Also, what a transition for uh, Joshua to be told that like, yeah, things are going to go to shit once Moses dies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So then he puts the Levites in charge of this book that Moses has just written and he talks about how like they need to stay in charge of it because the people are rebellious and stubborn and they're going to get much worse after Moses dies. And then Moses wants to go speak to the tribe leaders so that he can tell them himself that they're all going to suck after he's gone and ruin everything for everyone. Yeah. This is all just a big like setup for an I told you so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, this is the second time we're being told of Moses's death. So... Back in Numbers, we basically set up for it. We did all the setup for it and then didn't actually say, like, Moses dies, right? Mm-hmm. It, it says, like, Moses was about to die, basically, and he's getting ready to go up on a mountain in Numbers. And the contradiction here is in Deuteronomy 31, 14, the Lord said to Moses, your time to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting so that I may commission him. They do this private commissioning in the tent of meeting. In Numbers 27, 22, so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. He laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord had directed through Moses. So in the priestly version, it's very public in front of the whole congregation. Obviously, the Aaronite uh, priest at the time, Eleazar, is presiding over this. And it's outside the tent of meeting because Joshua cannot enter the tent of meeting. Mm. The priestly text does not allow anybody but it, but the priests to enter the tent of meeting, and Joshua is not a descendant of Aaron. Right. But Deuteronomy doesn't care about right. like the priest, about the Aaronhood priesthood. Right. The timeline is also a little bit different, too, because in the priestly version, the this is occurring after they've given all of the laws, and then in this one, they're going to give the laws after they commission Joshua. Mm-hmm. So now we get into this song that everybody has been talking about. So this <laughs> it's a is a long one. Yeah, this is the bop that Moses teaches the people so that they, you know, in the future they can look back and be like, oh my God, that's right. Like he did say that we were all going to um, start following other gods and bad things were going to start happening to us. So th- this part's kind of weird because I tried to like interpret the song into like layman's terms. So that's what this is. So it starts out with, Listen, heaven and earth, hear my words, fall like rain on new growth. God is great. It's basically the first little (laughs) part. 
And then it goes on to say, God is perfect and just. He's faithful and not deceitful. However, his children are perverse, crooked, and will act against him. And then we have some rhetorical questions. Is this how the people choose to repay God? Did he not create you all and set you up well in life? Then he says, why don't you go ahead and ask your elders about the good old days when God divided humankind? And this is a quote. He fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. What did you think about that line? I have a whole thing about what that line is actually about, but I'll, uh, I, obviously it reeks of, of polytheism. Yeah. And there are different wordings in other versions of the Bible, mm-hmm. in particular, like obviously King James Version has a much more toned down version of that. Okay. Do you want me to keep going through the Yeah, song we'll come back to it. I will bookmark that. Um, another quote I have is, the Lord's own portion was his people, Jacob, his allotted share. So then he goes on to say that he was the one who protected Jacob in the desert and looked after him without the help of another god. Uh, he fed Jacob all the best food from the field and the animals. They abandoned God and they made him jealous by worshiping other gods. They sacrificed the demons. Everybody has forgotten about God, so... God is going to hide his face from you. And then I have another quote that says, For a fire is kindled by my anger and burns to the depths of Sheol. So Sheol is our replacement for the word Hades. And it started as just a general like resting place for the dead. So when you die, you go, you go to Sheol. And then later it was kind of like reinterpreted as the resting place for evil people. So, like, in this line, this line is saying that God is the creator of hell and that the fires in hell are, like, God's anger. Right. Which is completely different from what I was raised with, which, like, I was raised with the idea that, like, God is everything good in the world. And so hell is, was, like, basically created by the devil. Like, hell only came about because of the devil and the devil, like, rules over hell. And, like, all those fires are, you know, the evils of the devil. Oh, really? But, I don't think I was taught that. Okay. So you think, grew up with the idea that, like, you're here because God is angry with you. I think we were generally nonspecific about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think my understanding was that dev- the devil had been condemned to hell, as will all of, like, the sinners or whatever. Uh, because I don't—generally, Christians are hesitant to— consider the idea that things can be created outside of God. Yeah, I feel like they, they there's a lot of wishy-washiness on that. But, like, my understanding was always, like, hell was, like, an idea thought up by the devil kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. and that he was trying to, like, drag people over to, like, his domain. Yeah. I think it's a part of the general inconsistency and debate about does God create evil or not? Yeah. Right? It's always like this like line they're walking of like, well, if we're to say that he didn't, then we're kind of acknowledging his lack of omniscience. Right. And if we're saying that he did, then that's questionable too. And mm-hmm. Christians get really uncomfortable about it. Yeah. I'd also like to point out that like we still haven't really seen much of the devil in the Bible at all. No. So and that- also uh, you pointed this out, but, but to, to clarify again, Sheol is not hell. It's not. The, moder- the idea of hell that comes in the New Testament and I think also in later parts of the Old Testament 
is a completely different thing from what Sheol is. Sheol is basically an underworld. Yeah. Okay. God goes on to say that this anger will devour the earth and set the foundation of mountains on fire. He's going to put lots of disasters on the people, like wasting hun- like wasting hunger, burning consumption, bitter pestilence, beasts with venom that crawl. Uh, so again, going back to this idea that like God is the one who is, he's not only like, he's not someone standing back and like letting bad things happen. He's the one who is like putting these disasters onto mm-hmm. the people. And administering his, the punishment. Yeah, his anger is the one devouring the earth and setting the foundation of mountains on fire. Yeah. God is talking about how he was going to wipe out everybody, but he was afraid that the Canaanites or their enemies would take credit for wiping them out. They would say, like, oh, see what happened to them? Like, we did that. Right. It, it, it's, I don't know, it's a weird catch-22. Yeah. Like, God trying to figure out if he wants to, like, harm the Israelites or not. Or if that's going to empower the, his enemies. Yeah. And the next part, it's, it was unclear to me if this is in reference to the Israelites or to the Canaanites because he just said he's not going to wipe them out because he doesn't want their enemies to take credit. And then he's, in the next line it says they. So I don't know which one he's talking about because it says mm-hmm. they have no common sense because if they did, they would have figured out how this will all end. Right. So I don't know if he's saying that the, you know, the Israelites should have common sense um, and then they would know that if they turned away from God, that they would be destroyed. Or if he's talking about the uh, Canaanites have no common sense because if they want to think that they were the ones that destroyed, that destroyed the Israelites, then they're wrong in that. Mm-hmm. And then he says, how could a nation be defeated unless their God had abandoned them? Um, and then there's another quote that is, in, I think, enforces this idea of like polygamy, which is, indeed, their rock is not like our rock. So he's talking about how, like, nations are defeated when their God abandons them kind of thing. Uh-huh. And then he's he's talking about how, like, the Israelites are, like, cut from a different cloth than other nations, though. Yeah. He says that other nations' food sucks. He he, call, he says they're, like, bitter and gross and stuff. <laughs> um, and then he says God will revenge his people, and the gods that people turn to will not help them. And then it says... This is a quote. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. I feel like I'm a lot more shook than you are that like this is like explicitly saying that God is responsible for bad things. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. I just feel like I definitely remember addressing this discussion sometimes in like English class because I remember there have been like poets and stuff like that who have talked about this. Mm hmm. And I just feel like in my church, it felt like that discussion was avoided a little bit. But I think if you press them, they would have defaulted to, yeah, everything is ultimately like from God. And then they would have probably just said that evil really comes from the, uh, what do you call it? It comes from like Eve basically doing original sin. Yeah. And that that just is the product of, that original sin, and then they would have said that punishments, they would have very much agreed, are from God, and that those punishments are just. Mm. So they would say, like, this part about God, when he's talking about bringing, like, hunger and pestilence to the world, that's a punishment. And it's just. And it's good. And so it's so it's ultimately good. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, I guess I just like. I mean, we've spent enough time out of it now that that sounds pretty absurd. <laughs> so I think that's partly what you're struggling with. Yeah. Well, no, what I'm struggling with is like, I was like almost taught that like everything bad, it was just like, it was God taking his hands out of it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like he wasn't the one directly causing it. Like he was kind of allowing it to happen kind of thing, but he wasn't the one doing it because God is only love and all things good. Interesting. And so, yeah, I think that's why it's kind of like weird for me to see God say, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. Like he's the one saying like, I am both sides of the coin. Like I am the goodness in the world and I am the bad things too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is maybe a difference between like, like sometimes Catholicism, I think modern day is maybe a little more progressive than, maybe not progressive, progressive maybe not the right word, but a little less focused on the judgment mm -hmm. than especially conservative Protestant, like evangelical churches are. They're mm -hmm. very much focused on the judgment. And so the idea of a wrathful, like vengeful God isn't like, isn't foreign to them. Like, you know, when you see them attacking like, gay people and stuff like that like it's like god hates you right? yeah like, whereas i think what you're saying is that in your church you wouldn't have ne ever associated god with the idea of hate yeah kind of yeah yeah or just him like being this violent like i know he charges his people to like go and you know kill others but then this next part god says like his arrows will be covered in blood and his sword will devour flesh yeah so, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he uh, <laughs> loved when uh, Phineas freeing. Yeah, I know he likes it when that. his people kill, you know, other people that he deems, you know, unworthy or whatever. But um, I've just, like, never heard of this imagery before of, like, God kind of playing a much larger role. Like, it's, like, specifically him yeah. bringing it down on everybody. Anyways, uh, I guess let's get back to the polygamy here. Yeah, so, so that's like the end of the song, and it kind of ends with like, it kind of ends with praise God for he will avenge us. Yeah, so in addition to the the original part we were discussing, you mentioned also that like their rock is not like our rock, which is another implication that that they have gods, they're just not as good as as our God. Mm -hmm. But I'll uh, I'll start with my you know references. So a lot of this discussion comes from Michael S. Heiser. As far as I know, he's got kind of the most thorough analysis of this part of Deuteronomy that, uh, and in this line that is pretty heavily debated. Mm -hmm. So if you look at most of the Bible translations that are out there, you're going to find this line that says something like, when the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. That's what most translations say. Mm. A few translations say, according to the number of the sons of God, and this one just says gods. Yeah. And some of them, <laughs> some of them are really, really stretching, and they really completely change this line into something about uh, assigning people guardian angels. <laughs> okay. The Catholics just go wild. <laughs> um, so some of this is... Catholics will kind of associate this sons of God as being related to angels, whereas most evangelical groups and the, and the translations that they prefer tend to avoid that altogether and talk more about this as being the sons of Israel. So where the sons of Israel come from is the Masoretic text. 
which is a more recent Hebrew text of the Bible. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Septuagint, which is older and a Greek translation, it says sons of God. And if you look at the text that they've found from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it also says the sons of God. So scholars refer to this as a sort of oldest versus mostest type debate. So there are many source texts out there that say sons of Israel. The oldest texts say something that can be translated, that is generally translated to sons of gods, but in this case, the NRSV translates it to just gods. Okay. So stepping out of this for a second, we're going to talk about the Ugaritic literature. So in northern Syria, we have discovered archaeologically something called the Ugaritic literature, which was an uncovering of a bunch of literature that actually refers to like the Canaanite gods. Okay. The site is called Ugarite is where, where they got it. And it's where we get most of our information about what we know about the Canaanite beliefs. Okay. And in this Canaanite lore, El fathers 70 sons, and they're all gods. And these gods sort of preside over different nations, more or less. Okay. To reaffirm our ideas about how El is kind of associated with the Israelite god, mm -hmm. El in Ugaritic literature is depicted as bearded, residing in a tent or tabernacle, mm. and his throne rests on cherubim. He's his throne rests on cherubim. So angels. Okay. Yep. And he's the god of blessings and covenants. Okay. All of which is identical to Yahweh. Yeah. In Israelite beliefs. Yeah. In Jewish belief, and also kind of in Christian belief, if you consider them the same, there's this idea of God having a sort of a council, mm -hmm. right? He has a, a congregation of spirits that he can consult with. And we see this reference in 1 Kings, where a prophet describes Yahweh consulting with a council of spirits. And in Psalms, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. So what's happening here? is that we are preserving an older tradition, one in which there is a distinction between El and Yahweh. Okay. In this tradition, El fathers sons, and Yahweh is one of those sons. Yahweh is a god who is in the congregation of El the Most High. It, this is for Canaanites. Well, no, this is the tradition being preserved here. Okay, I see what you're saying. Okay. All right. And... And you can see it clearly because if you look at the Hebrew text of this, the beginning of that line where it says when the most high apportioned the world, the word they use is a form of L. Okay. After it talks about apportioning the nations, mm -hmm. it says the Lord, and that word is Yahweh. The Hebrew word here is Yahweh. Mm -hmm. The Lord's own portion was his people, right? So we use two different words. We refer to the most high L mm. as apportioning the world. And the portion that Yahweh gets is Israel. Jacob, his allotted share. Yes. Okay. So basically, this tradition preserves El as the most high and Yahweh as specifically the son of El and the God of the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Over time, what scholars believe happened is Israel sort of meshed those two together. Instead of them having one lower God who is a son of this most high God, they eventually just mesh the two of them into one thing and start to refer to them interchangeably. Okay. And you can actually see parts of the Bible where they do this intentionally. In the more recent priestly text, we actually have an explicit reference to this 
in Exodus 6, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, and I was not known to them by the name Yahweh. Okay. So the priestly text intentionally tries to clarify that El, the original Canaanite god that they at all worship, Mm -hmm. is now now Yahweh, even though they were once distinguished separately. Right. There's actually, uh, they found Egyptian inscriptions and hieroglyphics that actually reference Yahweh separately too. Mm -hmm. They reference Yahweh as the God of the, as they don't actually say Israelites. They refer to a different group of people that people believe was this nomadic group that kind of became the Israelites. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. So what, what Heiser overall describes is this idea that at Babel, the world was divided into all these nations, and they were each kind of uh, assigned a representative that is part of God's divine council. And what is kind of interesting is Heiser, in kind of an effort, I think, to bring like Christians and apologists on board with this more scholarly idea, yeah. they all hate it for obvious reasons. Right. He's really specific about it. Like, this isn't polytheism is what he's saying, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't really uh, refer to them as, like, gods. He refers to them as, like, a council, almost more like angels. He's like, yeah, these aren't, this isn't polytheism because there's still, you know, God at the top of it and all of these representatives. But to me, that's, like, really silly because, like, then what is polytheism, right? Right. I mean, I think you can even make an argument that angels in and of themselves are polytheism because, like, what is a god besides like a divine being. Yeah. The fact that one being is more powerful than the rest doesn't now make it monotheism. Yeah. Right. Zeus is kind of the lead God of the Greeks, but we still consider it polytheism. Yeah. Uh, So to close, I guess I'll I'll talk a little bit about what the counter to this is. The Mesoretic version, like we said, refers to it as like the sons of Israel. And that's a little bit confusing because what does that actually mean uh on first glance you might think like according to the number of the israelites but that's obviously way too many for a number of nations Mm -hmm. and then you could think of it as the sons of jacob which they were about 70 but now we're saying that at babel god apportions the world according to the number of sons of jacob which haven't been born yet like you know a thousand years in the future or something like that Mm -hmm. so that doesn't really make any sense either some of them refer to it as think of it as paralleling with like the descendants of Noah, because there are 70 of them described. Uh, But again, the oldest traditions are pretty clear in preserving this tradition. It parallels perfectly Mm -hmm. with Canaanite beliefs. And I think that's really interesting and kind of cool. I think it's cool too. Yeah, I kind of, well, and I also kind of just like love this like story of God being the son of a greater God and then kind of like usurping him slash meshing with him and, uh, yeah, and, you know, making people forget that there were all actually all these other gods and like our main God wasn't even really the main God to begin with. But now we like rewrite history so that he is that. Yeah. It's cool. It is cool. Kind of makes me like it a little more. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, Not as like, <laughs> like, oh, I want to go back to religion, but like as a story. Like I kind of always felt like our mythology was a little boring compared to others. But this kind of has a little more spice to it. I like it. Yeah, I, I think that the. As the more I read and understand the actual history of the Bible, the more interested in it I become from like 
I don't like any of it. I don't like any of the you know, ideas it presents, really. But mm-hmm. I do, to some extent, enjoy learning about it more and more. Because the more yeah. you learn about it, I think the more interesting the like new information becomes. Like the more you dive into it. Yeah. Anyways, uh, another line I pulled out of here that that I thought that that kind of goes along with all this is where it says, "Praise O heavens, as people worship him, all you gods." Again, kind of implying that like there's all these other gods, and it's saying like back off this is Yahweh's people and, mm-hmm. you know okay so once this song finishes then we go back to Moses's death uh, God is telling Moses to go on top of this mountain and to look out over the land that he is not going to get to enter into and then to just go ahead and die on top of that mountain um, so he does that after he gives his final blessing to everybody so for Moses's death foretold one interesting thing here is is it, it one interesting thing here is again at Deuteronomy thirty two fifty one, uh, we reference again Moses making a quote breach at Meribah, mm-hmm. uh, and this is contrary to everything else in Deuteronomy. Where at Deuteronomy one three and four, all of those state that Moses was punished for the Israelites' actions. They don't reference the waters of Meribah anywhere. And if you look at the retelling of all of that wilderness story, Deuteronomy doesn't mention something occurring at the waters of Meribah in which Moses makes a mistake. Right. Whereas Numbers talks about it, or the priestly text talks about it multiple times. So most scholars believe this is like a redaction by a later priestly Mm -hmm. editor that adds this in at 3251. Because for the Deuteronomist, Moses is a hero. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about Aaron from the Deuteronomist perspective. The Levites are the priests, more or less, and there's no mention of like Aaron as the leader of any priest. And Moses doesn't really do anything wrong, right? Moses is considered a hero and does everything right, and he just has to deal with the fact that the Israelites suck. Whereas the priests want to elevate Aaron, and so they kind of come back in here and want to throw that in there to like reinforce their narrative that Moses did, in fact, make a mistake. Yeah. Also, uh, the location of Kadesh is in question. So Kadesh here is described as being in the wilderness of Zin. Uh, compared to in Numbers 13, 26, it says that it's in the wilderness of Paran. So wilderness of Zin is located in the southern Negev. And if you, in terms of actual geo- geography, this, is, this would be correct, right? It is, the, the location we understand to be Kadesh is in the southern Negev quote, the wilderness of Zen. In Numbers 13, they change it to the wilderness, the wilderness of Paran to reinforce their narrative. It's the only place anywhere where it describes it in that location. And it's because they're trying to make the Yahweh spy story fit with the overall priestly narrative. Mm. Uh, for the priestly narrative, the Israelites don't arrive in the Negev until the 40th year because they're cursed. Right. That doesn't, that whole narrative doesn't exist in older traditions. So for the other traditions, there's no real issue with them arriving early, Mm. but the, the priestly text has to kind of come back and contradict everything else in order to clean up that timeline by saying, actually Kadesh is in the wilderness of Paran, locating it further to the Southwest to, to make it work. Hmm. Okay, and so then before Moses passes away, he gives a final blessing to all the tribes, to all the tribe leaders. Yeah, it's sort of a palm reading for each of them. 
yeah. tell them about, you know, who they are and, and what they're about. So the main things I had in this one, so are, are kind of contradictions that are uh, similar to other ones we've seen between this and the priestly text and the role of the Levites versus the Aaronides. Here, Deuteronomy 33.8 says, And of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your loyal one whom you tested at Massa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He ignored his kin and did not acknowledge his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. Uh, this Urim and Thummim is interesting. I It's been mentioned before, and I never really noticed it, but what it supposedly is is a part of the priestly vestments that are kind of like, it's like a Ouija board, essentially. What? <laughs> yeah, it's a Ouija board. You basically consult the Urim and Thummim, and it kind of gives you answers to like, it's like how you can consult God. Oh. So, yeah, I just kind of read right past it before, not really making much of it. Yeah. Partly because it was described in Exodus 28, and it was part of that whole priestly garb thing that was just really boring to read through. Yeah. There's just a million different things they're talking about, like, as being part of the priestly garb. Uh, but in Exodus 28:30, in the bre- breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the Israelites on his heart before the Lord continually. So specifically, belongs to Aaron and the sons of Aaron. They only are the ones who wear this. Whereas here in Deuteronomy, the Levites get to wear it. Mm. Uh, and remember, like Levites before in the priestly text weren't allowed to like touch any of the anything that belongs to the priest, really, like right, right. The priestly vestments going into the tent of meeting or anything like that, they would have died. Yeah. Here, it belongs to the Levites. And also, the sort of holy aspects of the Urim and Thummim aren't really present here. Mm. The Urim and Thummim are kind of like, again, we, this Ouija board that's more of a tool than in the priestly text. It has really like this holy value. Mm. Also, there's also a reference here to the Levites uh, burning incense. So 33.10 they teach Jacob your ordinances and Israel your law. They place incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Remember back in Numbers 17 with the like whole Korah and Dan and all of them rising up against the priests? Yeah, and then getting swallowed up by the earth. Yeah, so they have this whole thing. They like all burn incense in front of the altar and basically all of them die except for the priests. Mm-hmm. To, to make a point that, like, yeah, you're not the priest. You don't get to do this stuff. So it's number 1739. So Eliza the priest, took the bronze censers that had been presented by those who were burned, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar. A reminder to the Israelites that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron shall approach to offer incense before the Lord so as not to become like Korah and his company, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. Right? So very explicitly saying here that anyone who's not a son of Aaron cannot burn incense before the God. Mm-hmm. Levites cannot because Korah was a Levite mm-hmm. and they did this whole ceremony of them like burning their censers and stuff like that and they all died you know as a, a proving a point that Levites can't do this okay and then uh, Deuter- Deuteronomy just kind of ends on this note about so Moses dies um, and he nobody knows where he is buried to this day and talks about how there's you know never been a prophet like Moses for, he's the only one who got to speak to God face to face yeah, and uh, it's interesting you say that nobody knows where uh, Moses was buried. People think they know. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that there is actually a quote burial site that is located on the modern Mount Nebo, mm-hmm. which brings me to my other contradiction, which is what mountain you see several different versions of this in numbers 27. They call it a barim. in Deuteronomy three. It's Mount Pisgah in Deuteronomy 32. They say a barim, Mount Nebo. And in Deuteronomy 31, to the mountain of Nebo, the top of Pisgah. They're all over the place. (laughs) Uh, Wait, wait. In reference to which? In in reference to where Moses is to go to die. Okay. Where he's going to look out at the promised land and then die. Yeah. So most scholars are pretty comfortable with the idea that a barum is like a range of mountains because it refers to it kind of generally in Numbers 27. And then in Deuteronomy 32, it says a barum the Mount of Nebo, right? So it basically is implying that Mount Nebo is in the range of the Abarim Mountains. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of the phrases throughout Numbers sort of reinforce this. But Pisgah and Mount Nebo are kind of a clear contradiction. Because, so Mount Nebo has been archaeologically identified. Uh, We believe we know which mountain that was referring to. Pisgah is not a known mountain anywhere. Uh, So Numbers 27 and 3249 are both priestly or Numbers 3249 might be like a a priestly redactor, uh, whereas Deuteronomy 3 is definitely Deuteronomist. So from the Deuteronomist, the mountain is Mount Pisgah. And then for the priestly, uh, it's either it's Mount Nebo in the range of the Abarim Mountains. Uh, and then what is likely the case for Deuteronomy 34.1, where it, it's just like names two mountains kind of weirdly, is that it originally said Mount Pisgah, and then they just s- dropped in there Mount Nebo in addition to that. to like th- What they're trying to do is make you consider them the same mountains, which is what most Christians do today. They say, okay. oh, they're just different names for the same mountain. Got it. And that closes out... Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Joshua next. Yep. Our next patriarch. So that's all we have for today. Uh, we'll see you next time starting out Joshua. And we hope you enjoyed it. And feel free to check out our Twitter so that you can know when our next release dates are. And <laughs> what? Oh, I'm just laughing because last time we released the episode and then like, I don't know. It felt like a whole week later until we finally posted on our Twitter that we had posted <laughs> that we made a new episode. It was only like three days, is because we were trying to set up. I was we get to- really hung up on the clip thing. Like Ashton's really stuck on like we need to do it every time, and sometimes I don't know it's clip worthy anymore. You know? Yeah. Anyways, uh, check out our Twitter, and we'd love to hear feedback. Uh, if you want to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, bye all. Bye.